Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Uh, to those of you who are tuning in from home and to the few who pulled the trigger quickly last Wednesday uh, to get a seat in the, uh, in the sanctuary today. Um, it is so good to have uh, some real life faces in here. Not that the worship team uh, has not been real life, uh, but, uh, but this is really nice. Um, now, regardless of whether you're here in person or at home, I invite you uh, to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Jonah chapter 4 as we find ourselves nearing the conclusion of our study in this Old Testament prophetic book. Now, last week, we witnessed Jonah's reaction to the grace that God extended to the Ninevites. He was not happy that his missionary journey ended in salvation rather than destruction. And he let God know about it, right? Even questioning God's character and asking God to simply end his life. And today, we pick up right where we left off. So we're going to start at Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a, a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching heat, or a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray that you would teach us through it today. Amen. Okay, so Jonah is... Uh, is mad that God relented from bringing judgment down on Nineveh. And so what we see here in our text is that he storms out of the city and pouts, right? Well, we don't know for sure if he stormed out, but it seems more probable than hopping, skipping, or cartwheeling. But regardless, the first thing that Jonah does is that he leaves, right? He, he walks away from the people whom God saved through his message. Right? Rather than teaching them, discipling them, training them, Jonah walks away from them, opting to build his own little shack or booth in the Hebrew outside of the city. And, and again, we see here Jonah's hatred of the Assyrian people, a deep-seated racism that has tainted his ministry and impacted his relationship with God. Rather than stay in the city where he certainly would have been welcome to stay as an honored guest of the people he warned of God's wrath, he segregates himself. He would rather stay in a blistering booth outside of the city walls 
than in a home or even a palace within them. Jonah was not a Ninevite. He was not a friend of the Ninevites. This he makes perfectly clear. Now, uh, one could argue in his defense that Jonah just had simply fulfilled his purpose, right? He was merely leaving after doing what he came to do, which would be a great argument if the text presented that there was an interest in him leaving at all. Uh, Verse 5 says that Jonah left and set up camp to the east of the city. Well, when we look at the map that we have been using, where was home for Jonah? To the west, right? He came from Israel and entered the city from the west, and yet when he leaves, he's sitting to the east. He's not on his way home. In fact, he doesn't seem to be in a hurry to leave the area at all. Instead, he builds himself a small shelter in the opposite direction of his home so that he can, as our text says in verse 5, wait to see what would happen to the city. Even after seeing God relent, watching God's mercy extended, Jonah is still holding out hope that God would destroy Nineveh. He's hoping that God would relent from his relenting and that before Jonah goes home, we will have, he will have witnessed the destruction of his enemies. And so the visual that we have here is Jonah pouting in a makeshift hut, hoping to see fireworks as God pours down his wrath on Nineveh. And before we move on, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, to what extent are we spectators? Watching from a distance to see what God will do rather than actively participating in it. Now, churches are notorious for uh, leaving the city, right? Walking away from the action, from the people that God has called us to serve and building our own shelters, our own buildings in our own neighborhoods, serving our own interests first and watching from a distance to see how God will work with those who are not like us. The, the MO for many churches has been to get people to where we are, to get people to church rather than working on the turf of those that we're trying to reach. But Jesus says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. Not withdraw, build your own settlement and expect the disciples to come to you. Now, over the next number of months, as we unpack our vision and mission, uh, you're going to be hearing about our desire and our calling to be a people who don't retreat, but who exist to go and make disciples where they are. Uh, But Jonah retreats. He takes himself out of the game and becomes a spectator watching from the nosebleed section. But God doesn't write Jonah off just yet. Knowing that his booth or shack was uncomfortable and the sun was affecting Jonah, verse 6 says that God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Which leaves me with two questions. First of all, how pathetic is Jonah's little shack if it doesn't even provide shade for him? And secondly, how kind is God? For real, Jonah has been nothing but disobedient. 
pouting, challenging God's actions, questioning his character. And God is thinking about Jonah's sunburn. Right? God provided a leafy plant. Why? The text says to ease Jonah's discomfort. Right? God did not need to do this. Jonah is not where God wants him to be. He's not deserving of this benevolence, and yet God takes care of him. If it were me, I'd look at his sunburnt head and sweaty body and say, serves him right. Right? That's, that's what you get for storming out of, out of the town into the desert sun. You know what's not uncomfortable, Jonah? The dwellings in Nineveh that you could be staying in if you weren't too stubborn and hateful. Right? I'd let him live with the consequences of his choices. But God gently reminds Jonah of his presence. Just like when Jonah ran away from God the first time, God lets him know that he's still with him, even when Jonah walks away. He still sees, he still knows, he still cares. And, and this is big. To, to those who are listening today, who feel like God isn't with you, he, he is and he cares no matter what. For those of you here who know that you've walked away from him, you've been living in disobedience, God is still there. And he still cares. And he's gently walking with you. Psalm 139, 7-10, which we've read a few times in this study already, assures us. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle at the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Right? God is always with us, and there's nowhere that we can run, even if we're running, where God is not. So the Lord provides a plant for Jonah, and verse 6 says that Jonah was very happy about the plant. Exceedingly happy, as the ESV translation puts it. It's, it's actually kind of a smug line, isn't it? Like, he was very happy about the plant. Right? Jonah is thrilled that his comforts have been taken care of. Right? Things are going all right for Jonah. He's comfortable in the shade. Even though he's an ungracious, racist crybaby yelling at God for not doing what he wants, at least he's comfortable. Right? He's very happy about the shade. Can you tell I'm getting a little annoyed with Jonah at this point? Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I find it curious that our text says that he was exceedingly happy about the plant, but it says nothing of his happiness with God. It doesn't say that Jonah was so thankful to God for the plant. It just says he was happy about the plant. Did Jonah even think about God as he took pleasure in the shade that he'd been given? Or did he write it off as circumstantial? Can you believe my fortune that, the, that this plant would happen to be here? I, I can't help but wonder how many of us find satisfaction in the gifts that God gives and we miss delighting in the giver of those gifts. Right? We have happy, healthy families living under sturdy roofs eating plenty of nutritious food, living a luxurious life full of amenities and comforts that few in the history of the world have ever enjoyed. But apart from the occasional prayer at mealtime, we fail to praise 
God and thank him for these gifts that we do not deserve and did not earn. Often only addressing or calling on God when there's a problem or things aren't meeting expectations like God works at the front desk of a resort. God has given us incredible gifts. He's blessed us in so many ways that many of us fail to see because we've gotten so used to these blessings. Right? And like Jonah, we're very happy, thanklessly content about how things are going until things take an unexpected turn. And that's what happens to Jonah. He's very happy about the plant that God provided until the following morning. Verse 7 and 8. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Okay, so that changed quickly, right? Like Jonah's situation, his story changed pretty fast. Now, before we get into Jonah's reaction, the first thing that comes to my head when I read this is, why did God do this? Right? Is anybody thinking that? Why did God do this? Why did God give Jonah a plant to shade him only to take it away the next day? Right? Is this acceptable behavior by God? Was this to spite Jonah? Was it to uh, smite Jonah? Was this to prove a point? Was God teasing Jonah? What, what's going on here? Well, I think that answer is found in what this chapter has already taught us about God's character. Uh, last week we read in verse 2 what God is like. How he revealed himself and has proven himself to the Israelite people. Listen to Jonah's own words in verse 2 that we read last week. You are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. The reason God does this. It raises up a plant only to take it away is because God loves Jonah. And even though he has every reason to, God has not given up on him. Think about it. Jonah proves his heart to be hardened again. He runs away from God again. He declares that he wants to die again. And God doesn't just leave him in the desert to die. And he doesn't just let him rest in comfort, content to let Jonah remain hardened for life. He, he actually takes the opportunity to teach Jonah again, to help him see God's heart, and to give Jonah every opportunity to change, to himself repent, to finally get it. The, the whole book... This whole book, God has been trying to teach Jonah. He uses a storm to teach him of his sovereignty. He uses a fish to teach him of undeserving grace and mercy. He lets Jonah see his heart for people firsthand as he witnesses extreme forgiveness. Jonah's had opportunities along the way to get it, to understand and to turn to God 
But instead of shrugging his shoulders and giving up on Jonah when he doesn't get it, God continues to provide opportunities for Jonah to learn and grow and come to know the heart of God. Right? God is not teasing Jonah or patronizing him. He's trying to teach him again about his sovereignty, his mercy, and his heart for people. Right? This is an act of mercy from God to Jonah. God's goal for Jonah is not for Jonah to be comfortable in his bitterness. To be comfortable in his unbelief and lack of grace. God's goal for Jonah is that he gets it. And if it takes being comfortable, uncomfortable, if it takes being a little sunburned uh, to ensure that opportunities for growth continue, then so be it. Right? God takes away the shade to get Jonah's attention that Jonah may have yet another opportunity to know the heart of God. And church, this is what God is like. He is slow to anger. He has compassion on this prophet when I certainly don't. And he will give Jonah every opportunity to come to know him in the way that he does with all of us. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right? God gives us every opportunity to come to repentance, to know him. And he knows that if making you a little uncomfortable will help draw you to him, he will allow that every time. Because your salvation, your relationship with him is far more important than your comfort or than your ease. Praise the Lord that we have a God who loves us that much. Who, who will even let us be mad at him, curse him, to doubt him along the way to ensure that we have every opportunity to know him and to mature beyond where we are right now. But alas, Jonah misses it again. Jonah defaults to his dramatic ways, as we read in verse 8, wishing he were dead. This is the third time in this narrative, by the way. Now, I don't doubt that he was uncomfortable, right, being exposed in the Syrian desert as a scorching east wind blew. Right? I, I understand that, and I can relate to Jonah wanting it to end. Um, I don't know about you, but I have been sunburnt pretty badly a few times over the years. Uh, there are some pictures that I won't put on the screen. And it, I get how miserable, how painful, how sick you can feel, and how badly you want the suffering to end. Uh, maybe you can relate to and here's, uh, for some of you, the opportunity to nudge the person you're with and remind them about the time they looked like a tomato. But I think Jonah's repeated statement has less to do with his physical state and more to do with his previous sentiment. While, while his discomfort distracted him for a while, what he's really angry about is still that God is not doing things his way. And this is one of the intended challenges of this book. That God is sovereign and we are not. Right? That's one lesson we are meant to learn in this text. God is sovereign. 
which means that he is in control. Nothing can happen that he does not allow to happen. There is nothing that is out of God's hands, out of his capacity to do or to stop. He's the creator God and is all powerful. Now that doesn't mean that God enacts everything that happens. Right? Humans have free will and our actions have consequences. If I go get drunk, drive my car and crash it, that is not God's doing. Right? He did not make that happen, but he did allow it to happen in his sovereignty. Right? He has the capacity to intervene, but has chosen to allow actions to have consequences for our ultimate good and for his glory. But we need to know this, that nothing that happens surprises God. Nothing that happens handcuffs God or forces his hand. Many things sadden God, certainly, but nothing in this world is out of his control. As the old children's song accurately says, he's got the whole world in his hands. And what Jonah is being taught in this chapter in his life, this entire narrative that we've been reading, is that God's sovereignty is not subject to Jonah's preferences. Right? God's sovereignty is not subject to Jonah's preferences. We cannot pick and choose when we want God to be sovereign according to how it suits our needs and comforts. Let me point out this theme throughout the book. There's a, a series of actions and verbs attributed uh, directly to God that God in his sovereignty, because he's in control, does in this book. So in chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke to Jonah, because he can and does speak. Uh, and Jonah did not like what God said. Okay, there's a thumbs down there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, God sent a storm. So he does this. He sent a storm on the sea, which causes Jonah to despair. And we see that Jonah is not happy that God is Sovereign. His escape plan is thwarted, and he resigns himself to being thrown overboard to his death. Chapter 117, God appoints a fish to swallow and save Jonah, at which point Jonah is very happy that God is sovereign. Chapter 2, verse 10, God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out, which I anticipate was welcomed by Jonah, but we don't know for sure. But we'll give that one a thumbs up. He liked that. Chapter 3, verse 1, God speaks to Jonah again. And this time, Jonah responds. Now, we're not sure, sure exactly how Jonah felt at this point, but he obeyed anyways. Chapter 3, 10, God relents and in his sovereignty shows mercy to Nineveh, something that Jonah is not happy about. In chapter 4, 6, God provided or appointed a plant to shade Jonah, as we just read, a moment that Jonah was likely thrilled about the sovereignty of God. But in verse 7 and 8, God in his sovereignty appointed a worm to attack the plant, something that Jonah was devastated by. So as we walk through this recap of God's actions, one thing stays the same while one thing is all over the map. Right? Throughout this book, God has remained constant. He has been active. He has been sovereign from cover to cover. There's nothing that's out of God's control in this book. 
But Jonah, on the other hand, has been less than consistent in his appreciation of God's sovereignty. You see, Jonah is thrilled that God is sovereign insofar as it benefits him. But he cannot stand God's sovereignty when God acts differently than Jonah would like. When God appoints a storm, Jonah isn't thrilled that God controls nature. But when he appoints a fish to save him, he's delighted that he does. When God appoints a plant, Jonah's happy that he knows a God who appoints. But when God appoints a worm, Jonah wishes appointing was out of God's hands. Right? I'll say it again. Jonah is only happy that God is sovereign when he gives Jonah what he wants. I wonder to what degree our relationship with God resembles Jonah's. Are we only on board with what God appoints when we agree with it? Are we only willing to accept what God does when we like it? Are we only happy to trust God when we can see what he's doing, which isn't actually trust, by the way? Or are we willing to concede that God is God, that his sovereignty is a good thing, a glorious thing, at all times, even when he does what is hard to understand? If you were to flip back about 400 pages in your Bibles, you would find the account of a man named Job. And in this account, Job loses everything that he has. His children, his wealth, his belongings, his health, everything. Not because God did these things, but because God allowed these things. But Job's response to this is much different than Jonah's. In Job chapter 1, 20 to 21, in response to the death of his children, the loss of his belongings and his livelihood, Job falls to his knees, not in despair, but in worship to God, as verse 20 says, declaring, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Later, after he's been ill, uh, Job's wife tells him to curse God and die, to do the Jonah thing, to which Job replies in chapter 2, 10, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Here is a man who understands that God's sovereignty is true, is excellent and praiseworthy, no matter what it looks like for us, no matter what our current circumstances may be. The Lord gives. For Jonah, the gift of shade. And the Lord, in his sovereignty, can determine it right to take it away. And the appropriate response for Jonah and for us at all times is to praise God that he is active, working, and in control. A number of years ago, songwriters uh, Matt and Beth Redman wrote a song that, that most of us are familiar with called Blessed Be Your Name. And I just want to read these lyrics to you. It says this, Blessed be your name, in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. 
which I think we can all nod along, right? We can all get on board with singing something like that. But the song goes on. And blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. But when the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The song goes on, blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, not in the way that we read in Jonah, but when the sun's shining down on me, things are good. When the world's all that it should be, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And the song ends with the direct quote, Job's declaration. You give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Right? What, what incredible lyrics. Not easy to sing. Right? I think we sing a lot of worship songs. We go, ah, what a great song. And we don't think about what I'm actually singing about. Right? These are not easy lyrics to sing, but they're incredible biblical truths about the sovereignty of God and his, his deserving of our praise at all times, right? Because God is consistent, right? Well, we are inconsistent, right? Like, like on, the, on the screen, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, right? It changes depending on our circumstance. But God is consistent in his sovereignty. He is always sovereign. He is always good. He is always in control over it all, even when I don't feel like it. Even when we're uncomfortable or have concluded that death would be the best option for us. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And who are we to demand that he act differently? Uh, listen to the words of God as prophesied by Isaiah regarding this. Isaiah 45, 7 and 9 says this. I am the one who forms light and creates darkness. The one who brings about peace and creates calamity. I am the Lord who accomplishes all these things. Oh, sky, rain down from above. Let the clouds send showers of deliverance. Let the earth absorb it so salvation may grow and deliverance may sprout up along with it. I, the Lord, create it. One who argues with his creator is in grave danger. One who is like a mere shard among the other shards on the ground. The clay should not say to the potter, what in the world are you doing? Your work lacks skill. Man, that's powerful. May we be people who celebrate the fact that God is in control at all times, not just when it suits us or when we get our way. And may we be thankful that everything we have is a gift from God in the first place. That, that we are not the owners of it, nor did we do anything to earn it. That we're entitled to keep it beyond what God determines is good. Do you remember how God responded to Jonah last week? When Jonah got so angry that he wanted to die. He essentially asked Jonah in verse 4, what do you have to be mad about? Right? Are, are you right to be angry, he says? Well, here, after another outburst, another tantrum, God gently asks Jonah the very same question. 
Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah, what do you have to be angry about, God says. This plant that you're so upset about was a gift from me. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it. You didn't find it. You don't own it. I provided it to you for a time because I'm generous. And I'm still generous in taking it away. And if you would trust me, if you knew who I am, you would know that I'm in control and doing something that will turn out for your own good. As the promise we uh, reads in Romans 8, 28, we know, well, maybe it's a question, do we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose? God asks Jonah, is your anger the right response here? To which the hardened Jonah responds, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And it's here where we see the real problem. Jonah sees himself as the victim in all of this. It's such a sad scene, isn't it? The self-pity that Jonah sees here, feeling sorry for himself that God forgave the Ninevites. Feeling sorry for himself that he's out in the heat. Feeling sorry for himself that the plant he found joy in withered away. All Jonah can see is himself. He can't see 120,000 people that God has just saved because he's too mad about being burnt by the sun. He can't rejoice in this incredible personal conversation he's having with God because he's too mad that God isn't his own personal genie, right? And he actually feels justified in this. He feels justified by labeling himself as the victim here, right? Now we can see he's no victim, but it's the narrative that he's written for himself. To Jonah, what God has done has happened to him, and he is the victim of it. And this, this self-pity, this self-focus, victim identity is what keeps him from seeing the gravity of the situation he's really in. It keeps him from seeing the world as it really is. You see, we have no room for pitying others if all our pity is reserved for ourselves. Let me say that again. We have no room for pitying others, which we're called to do, if all of our pity is reserved for ourselves. This is the mindset that brings Jonah to a place where he would have been fine with the destruction of 120,000 people, but he's not okay with his lack of comfort. And unfortunately, this same mentality is prevalent in our culture today with everyone playing the, the victim card or out-victiming each other by comparing our alleged sufferings, even when we aren't actually victims at all, right? And it's, a, it's an attractive move to identify as a, as a victim because victims are always right. We don't need to change or take responsibility. We don't need to look past the end of our own noses if we convince ourselves that we're the victim. We're being wronged here. Theologian Eugene Peterson wrote, 
that we live in a society in which self-pity far exceeds pity. We may be the most self-pitying populace in all of human history. Feeling sorry for yourself has become developed into an art form. I don't know if that resonates true with you, but it sounds pretty accurate. And we could spend weeks probably talking about how our culture is increasingly moving in this direction. How it's our default to think of ourselves first and to throw ourselves pity parties whenever things don't go our way. Find something to blame when things aren't good as individuals and as a church. But for today, we must just heed the warning from this text that there is a danger whenever we identify as victim of becoming so self-focused that we become outwardly useless. Right? That we're so focused on seeing ourselves as the victim that we cannot possibly empathize with the real victims that we've been called to love and serve. Right? We need to look up from our own circumstances and open our eyes to the real needs around us. Church, we can't serve the homeless if we're too busy serving our own preferences. We can't fight for the widow and the orphan if we're too busy fighting for our own rights. We can't see the truly needy if our perceived need is all we can think about and all we can see. We are called to look out the window to see where we can be salt and light. And we're in danger of being useless. No, worse than useless. If we are too busy looking at our own reflection in the glass. Right? We get so caught up seeing our own reflection that we miss what that window is there to help us see. Church, may we not miss the 120,000 because we're too concerned with our comfort in the shade. May we not miss loving others because we're too busy pitying ourselves. Unfortunately, today's lessons come again in the form of don't be like Jonah. But unfortunately, as unflattering as it may be, we are Jonah. We are consistently inconsistent. Praising God one day and rebuking him the next. We are selfish, stubborn, prejudiced, and just don't seem to get it. But my hope for us, unlike Jonah, is that we do learn these lessons that God is teaching us in his word. Church, may we trust in the sovereignty of God in every circumstance. May we be thankful with all that we are given. May we have the courage to, to look up from our own circumstances that we may see what we've been called into, that our hearts may beat along with the heart of our Father who has done everything he can to make himself known to us. And may the refrain coming from this church not be, woe is me, but rather in every circumstance, blessed be the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you how you use it as a mirror for us to see ourselves. God, I pray that we would learn these lessons. <laughs> 
God, that we wouldn't stay secluded with our arms crossed thinking about ourselves, but we would be people who every day move a step closer to looking like Jesus, who was constantly looking at others. God, may we be filled with pity for who we ought to have pity for and be your hands and your feet in this world because we see the injustice and we can see past our own circumstances. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church. <laughs>